Cornerstone, really, really welcome uh, with us this morning. My name's Graham. I'm the senior pastor, and like I said, we're today's. Um, it's actually kind of not officially the start, if uh, it sort of is, but isn't, of this new series we're about to jump into, called Scent. So it is. Uh, I guess what I'm going to do this morning is sort of functioning a little bit like an epilogue, like an introduction. Um, like a, a bunch of things that have been really on my heart, on my spirit, um, that I think have probably pulled towards, or, or like strands coming together towards this this series we're going to do. It's going to be really exciting. We're going to hear we're going to, a, a number of guest speakers coming in a couple of weeks. There's a young lady that I uh, young listen to me sound like I'm 60. Um, she's actually someone who's my age. She's a good friend. Some of you know Ruth Limkin. Uh, Ruth Limkin is going to come and. and uh, and speak with us and she is talk about someone who is living scent who has walks out her door every day with a sense in which God has taken her somewhere she's got an amazing story she worked as sort of a pastor you know a professional Christian for a while that's the least interesting thing that she's done that's sort of possibly and I say this you know with a little bit tongue-in-cheek it's possibly the least most effective thing she's done for the kingdom was work for a church a lot of you are going yes and amen to that probably but what she's done since and the way in which she, the life she lives is really amazing. Um, and we're going to have a few other guest speakers. So I'm really looking forward to this series. It's going to be great. But I actually, um, I want to start this morning. This, this morning, if you are in the habit of um, taking notes or you like a nice sort of banner headline to give you a bit of an idea of where we're going, from little things, big things grow. Who just flashed straight to a Paul Kelly song? What a great song it is too. There's, Paul Kelly wrote, uh, wrote a, a famous, it's a bit of an anthem really, um, about the start of um, a significant civil rights movement. In, it started actually in Queensland, where a guy called Vincent Lingari, they had a sit-in to really object to the conditions of Indigenous workers on cattle stations. And Paul Kelly wrote of that sit-in. It was kind of a bit, it's been, I think, very appropriately linked to the sort of Australia's Rosa Park moment where, you know, a, a, little, a little action that led to this incredible sort of outburst of justice for Indigenous people. So uh, that's a song that Paul Kelly wrote. It's just a great song too. But Paul Kelly and another Indigenous artist called uh, Kevin Carmichael wrote that song. It's a great song. You can Google it afterwards if you don't know. But where I'm, where I'm I guess, the, the launching off pad, the, the launching point in Scripture... Um, for us this morning is a parable that Jesus told it's in uh, Matthew 13 I think it's in Luke somewhere too Luke 6 or somewhere but Jesus told this parable where he often began his stories his parables his pictures by saying the kingdom of God is like so it's one of those the kingdom of God is like parables and he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed he said which is the smallest of seeds but when it's planted it grows into this massive tree. Now, I'm not really sure if that's a mustard tree. I don't even know really what a mustard tree looks like. But for the sake of this, let's all imagine that's a mustard tree. Um, so, again, Jesus, as he often did in his parables, taps into this reality that we all know to be true. Actually, the best sermons, I think, the best sermons and the best stories don't do anything new. They just give words and tap into something that we know to be true already. That, that re- resonates with being human or resonates with what life is like. 
And actually, sometimes it gives us a new understanding, gives us language to access. It's like, oh, I've always felt that, but that's helped me access that and understand it. This is what Jesus would do so profoundly with his parables. He would just, you know, he would, he took something that everyone kind of, isn't it funny how this little thing becomes a big tree? Imagine how many times in, in history, particularly in the culture of the, of the day, which was an agricultural, um, you know, farming economy how many times someone would have kind of just wondered in their day oh isn't it funny how this small thing become, becomes this big thing so Jesus taps into that and people go oh yeah I know, I know that yeah this small seed becomes this massive tree and then he goes on to say I think one of the most um, the uh, beautiful parts of this picture is he says and goes into this big tree where the birds of the air come and nest and find refuge in the tree so he says the kingdom of God is from small things, big things grow. There's that idea. But then he also explains the king. When it does grow, it'll be a place where small things will, will find refuge, will, will be safe, will feel at home. So it actually has this loop. Small, big, small. You know, big is only important in the kingdom of God because something small can happen. And so this morning, that's where... Uh, guess I want to, as we look at the idea and launch into a series where I, uh, I hope and I trust we're all going to be encouraged to step out into our worlds to be a part of God's mission. As soon as we, as soon as we sort of, someone like me with a microphone in a church like this puts this up, this idea of, okay, we're going to be encouraged to mission, particularly if you've been around churches for a while, sometimes can be a little bit of a flinching back. It's like, oh, he's going to sort of trying to drum us up to do something big here I've got to make a big decision I've got to leave my job and become a professional Christian I've got to leave my job I've got to give all my money away I've got to do something big oh and does anyone recognize that feeling maybe sometimes it's like again unintentionally often we trumpet these big things and so what gets attached to the idea of being on mission with God is doing something big I want to release you from that this morning in fact no I believe the spirit of God wants to release you from that because the idea that you would flinch away from being on mission with God, something's gone wrong. It should be liberating. It should be releasing. Jesus came that you would have abundant life. Not be scared that you're going to get asked to do something that you don't really want to do in church. And I think that we're going to see in, in Scripture and actually throughout history that our story the story of the followers of Jesus, the story of the church is from small things, big things grow. And actually what God is calling us to do is just the small things in front of us, trusting that from that big things grow. And my prayer is, and my experience is that it will become very, very liberating, very, very liberating for us all. Um, a, a while ago, I read this great book, called The Cities of God, written by um, a guy called Rodney Stark, who's a historian, he's an academic and historian. And uh, many years ago, he started researching uh, this interesting, as a historian, wasn't a Christian, wasn't a believer, but he was a historian who understood history well enough and, and was sort of fascinated by this historical truth, an inescapable truth, a question really, how did the Christian movement, the church, have so much influence so quickly? 
in, in historical sense. How did this ragtag bunch of people who followed Jesus, who was a carpenter from a small village in the middle of nowhere, literally, in terms of the ancient world of the time, Nazareth was nowhere. How did he have such a short life that profoundly affected such a small number of people that within about 300 years completely reshaped the biggest and most profound empire that had been, been ever known to man, the Roman Empire? And, and he started to... This is something going on here that drew... The historical kind of inquisitive drew him into this. And actually in that journey, he became a believer. It's one of those great stories. And since he's written a number of books, and this one on the cities of God really looks into it and you can see there the little the by the sort of um you might not be able to read that the the explanation under cities of God the real story of how Christianity became an urban movement and conquered Rome it's interesting now it's a it's a great book it is a historical book so I would say if you're a historian great book if you're having trouble sleeping at night also a great book it can work a couple of ways for you there um but one of the things that he does in this book, and again, historians, is, is to understand the ancient world. We've got to understand the ancient world, <clears throat> and in particular, understand cities. So it was around the time of Jesus in the, the first couple of centuries where the Roman Empire really, for, for a whole lot of reasons, org- started to organize itself in these cities. And uh, Stark t- says there's about 31 cities, major cities. And it was from that... The, uh, they became the source of cultural influence, of political influence, of social influence. From out of these cities really came the influence for the, the nation and the world. And that's really how we still work today, which is to not diminish at all the importance of rural and regional areas, but that is just a sociological fact that started in the Roman world. Now, these cities, uh, we need to understand, like Rome was the, the biggest city of the time, but it was, you know... The, Historians say it was maybe 200, 300, 400,000 people. So they're not, in terms of numerical cities, they weren't huge. A city, a major city, say like Ephesus, um, Caesarea, they're maybe 40,000, 50,000. So in our terms, they're not necessarily massive people-wise. But what was very distinctive about these cities is how dense they were. The, the, the people were just living on top of each other. So maybe our minds flash to our favourite Dickens novel, um, the kind of the the fag and the, the the kids, you know, thinking of that Victorian England has a little bit of a a vibe where they were not only centres of power and influence, they were centres of poverty, um, centres of great crime, centres of disease, and this is the big one. Stark talks about actually what would happen. People were living centres of filth. Sanitation wasn't great. So many people living so close together, so dense with really poor hygiene standards, high poverty. Every now and then, routinely, these great epidemics would come through these cities and just lay waste to the city. And what you did if you lived in one of those cities in the time is, if you could, you'd get out. Makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> you'd get away. And so all the peoples of, of means and connections, you might have family who lived in another city, you might have a country home somewhere, your, your ancestral home. You, you had the ability, when they came, you got out. Completely logical thing to do. So who would remain in the city? the poor, the orphans, socially isolated. And Stark notes, and actually historians of the time noted, actually, come the second century or so, there would be another group of people who would stay, the Christians. 
Christians would stay. And not only would they not, not only would they not get further away, they would stay and get closer to people. They would care for people. And this was actually in the ancient world considered not noble, really. It's only now through Christian lenses we look back. But actually, time it was considered stupid. It was almost considered immoral because it's not what you did. And so that's where Stark looks at the, through history that commentators, um, this is a, a historian called Eusebius, uh, it's around 300 AD. He made a comment in his historical records talking about Christians all day long. Some of them, Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to all of them, to them all. So there started to appear in, in history these kind of comments, just, um, then, you know, sort of secular comments. They weren't making, they, it wasn't propaganda for Christians. They're saying, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. These Christians seem to be staying, which makes no sense. They seem to be responding and caring for the small things right in front of them. And actually, um, a bit later, uh, about 50 years after this, oh, I've just stopped here. Could you click on to the next one, please, mate? I just seem to have stopped there. Um, there was an emperor called Julian the Apostate. Now, his mum didn't give him that name. Uh, you, you would be surprised not to know. That's actually, again, the, the, the sort of the title that's been given to him from a Christian perspective looking back because he was the last, he was known as the last sort of great pagan emperor, uh, where he really, in response to the rise of Christianity, to the the, the fact that this, these Christians, these um, Galileans, they were they were known as because that's where they came from, were, seemed to be having a growing influence and popularity because of the way in which they were responding to needs in their city, and so he was very threatened by that. People who've got agendas and agendas of power and influence and self um, self aggrandizement they wanted good things for themselves uh, they get threatened by people who are completely the opposite you're very threatened by that and so he was very threatened and so he tried to drum up the pagan religions and he would communicate to the pagan priests and said come on we got to get our act together we're losing market share here we, we got to get things going and so he wrote to one of the pagan priests and he said this when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the priests, like our priests, then I think the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. And he was writing this saying, we've got a problem here. And actually in another letter he said, they, the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And so he uh, sort of really tried to get the pagan religions and the priests going but it failed terribly it couldn't because it required too much of them and so Stark makes this comment the power in the and really this comes down to why did why did it all history turn on a dime in the third century the power of Christianity lay not in the promise of otherworldly compensations for suffering in this life as so often has been proposed no, the crucial change that took place in the third century was the rapidly spreading awareness of a faith that delivered potent antidotes to life's miseries here and now. Every religion offered something in the afterlife, but actually, genuinely, Christianity, 
the way of Jesus was saying there is life now we're going to respond to the misery and the reality here and now now it would be very easy at this stage to kind of go are we just saying we just need to um, kind of this is a good PR strategy we just need to do some this is a way to win people over just influence do more of this good stuff and, and actually sometimes in church we can slip into any of our lives we can slip into this mode that it'll create if, if we do nice things for people we'll have more influence historians and particularly Stark is really uh, really wants to point out that actually there was something other than self-interest even the broader self-interest of the Christian community that was promoting this because it couldn't be replicated in other religions all the other religions tried to do that but they couldn't replicate the care the love the courage, the faith, the sacrifice, the humility of the early church because it seemed to be coming from something else. It seemed to be supernaturally inspired. It wasn't about humans trying to do their best. It was something else that was going on because, again, in that context, it made no sense what they were doing. Now, we know if we read the book of Acts, this is what the Holy Spirit came for, to empower the church to be on mission to carry on the mission of Jesus. So it should be no surprise, but it was a massive surprise to the ancient world. And everything changed. Everything changed. And there is a sense in which historically, we are still living off the, the position we have, as particularly as Christians in the West, the influence that we have, and we use these phrases like a Judeo-Christian society, is because of what happened here. Now, it just so happens we live in a time where that is now waning. And I've, I've mentioned this before, and I know it's, it's sort of something for bigger discussion that I'm, I'm glad to have with people at any time. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Because actually, if we look at our story in Scripture and through history, and this is part of it, we actually see that faith, the, the faith of Jesus flourishes in the margins. And actually, for the hundreds of years where political power and the church were intrinsically linked, because after this came Constantine and he made Christianity the official religion. Now, Stark and many historians say, well, that's really a result of what they did, the small things, and this big thing grew. History bore out that we didn't really handle and haven't really handled the combination of the power of the, the government and the power of, the, of Christianity being one. And actually what we see, again, throughout Scripture is that that was never really God's plan A anyway. Have a, list, um, have, a, have, a, have a think about these stories. These are some of our great stories, our great heroes of the faith. We're looking at from little things, big things grow. David, where do we find him? Over on the back paddock, looking after the sheep, because he was the youngest, because all the brothers were off doing bigger things. What we do know about David, he was doing those little things with character, with humility, serving his dad to the best of his ability. He gets asked to take some cheese sandwiches down to his brothers at the battlefield, and he turns up. And again, the story goes, he's completely offended and mystified not trying to make a name for himself but that someone would speak against the name of God he couldn't believe no one else was going to do anything so he says well I'll have a crack we, the way that story is written is where to understand there wasn't David sort of looking for something big he just felt there was something reasonably small that needed to be done right then 
And from that comes King David. The story of David, we understand biblically, where to understand that as a um, sort of theologically, David is like he's out, um, it's like he's living out the role description for the Messiah. Here's what ruling and reigning looks like in the kingdom of God. All of the other kings, by contrast, all the other kings were duds. Self-interest, kind of lack of courage, lack of faithfulness. David in the middle stands as, here's what a good king looks like. He's, he's someone who, and, and again, it started from small things. Now that role description is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Again, where does, G, where does Jesus start? He starts, he couldn't have started any smaller. If you tried to write that story, you could not have got it to write any, start any smaller. Born in the back of a pub, in a shed, to unwed teenage parents from, not, from a, a, a village that no one really knew about. He didn't do anything for 30 years. We didn't hear anything for 30 years. Spent three years walking around with 12 people. And from that, great things come. From little things, big things fly. That's the fulfillment of, again, what it looks like to rule and reign in the kingdom of God. Joseph, again, sold out by his brothers, obviously bullied by his brothers, not someone of influence in his own family to be able to even avoid being sold off into slavery, ends up in Egypt, in captivity. What's he do? He just starts serving in Potiphar's house. Does what's in front of him. Does the small things in front of him and does it well. And then from that, something big grows. Think about Daniel in exile. Here's a guy who has no cultural power, no influence. He's a slave. His whole nation is enslaved to the Babylonians. But there's something about Daniel where he just serves where he's at and he gets promoted within the, the courts of the king. Actually, a very, very similar story to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you read and understand the position that they were in, when they then took this stand to not bow before the God, it was because they must have been doing something quite extraordinary that they would be trusted. That again says that they were young men who were exemplary and were in positions of influence. Well, that would have only come in that context if they were just serving and doing the small things in front of them. It's one of my favorite stories, Esther. Again, amazing story where this woman is in, has incredible opportunity to, as her uncle uh, says, that perhaps you were born for such a time as this. Does this great big thing that we all celebrate that brings kind of freedom and liberation to her people, saves her people. But first, she was a woman of such exemplary character where to understand. That doesn't come by accident. A whole lot of, we know, character is just by doing a whole lot of small things with great integrity, repeatedly. This is our story. All of the great stories are just people who start small doing something in front of them, and from that something big comes. Interestingly, here's a little pop quiz. What is, what's, the, what's the thread line through those three stories? Wonder. And actually, you could throw Jesus in this, in this as well. Um, there's a thread line here about the context in which they were they were living, the times in which they were living. They were all in exile. They were all living in a context where, where the people who were shaping laws and who had the levers for cultural and political and social power were not asking, what would Jesus do? Or what would God do? In, in fact, they were antithetical 
to the ways of Yahweh. This was the context in which some of our greatest his, uh, heroes of the faith worked out. So they had no power. They weren't operating at a time where there was great power and influence available to God's people. And again, this is where actually if we lean into and listen to the story, our story in Scripture, we understand that actually this is the context, it seems, where the great things happen. So as we continually lose influence and power and influence in the West that we had for a long period of time because some really small things happened repeatedly, there's maybe some encouragement for us here to say it's all not lost. Actually, there's maybe an opportunity if we're prepared to lean into our story and claim that from little things, big things grow. The fact there's there's maybe an opportunity for us to really inhabit our story and what it looks like to outwork kingdom influence and authority from little things, big things grow. We know this through history too. This woman, probably one of the most revered believers outside the church and respected outside the church, followers of Jesus. One of her most famous quotes. Not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And there's a life that was lived by that. Small things with great love. What a great quote. What a great axiom to live like small things with great love i was thinking this week this is actually the story of cornerstone i think i, I when when i when christy and i came to cornerstone it was 95 i think the church had been going for about five years by then maybe about that um and and led by charles and chris and actually the, the friars who were there too there was a bunch of some of you were there at the time a bunch of people who were just really committed to being the people of God in this community and uh, Clem and Leanne were, were driving around anywhere picking up people for picnics and there was all sorts of the focus was how can we be God right here right here what does it look like for us to be God's people in this city in this place and from that again we've talked talk before about a whole lot of things came from that the, the work that we did amongst refugees that was not because it was a political issue. That started well before it was a political issue. It's just because we were aware there were people in our community who were isolated, who were vulnerable, and Scripture says that we should reach out to people like that and make space for that. And there's so many things that have flown. This is, I think, the story of our church. Interestingly, as I became a part of Cornerstone and when I would be out and about um, across our city or even interstate, so often I would hear a very similar thing that people who had heard of Cornerstone um, would say something like, oh yeah, I've heard of Cornerstone and I've heard of some of the work you do. And again, this was not something to be sort of puffed up about. But there has been, it's like a spirit. I, th- I think there's even been uh, over, over many, many years that, that Cornerstone's been there, like a prophetic, regularly we'd get some of those spooky, weird, you know, prophetic people who'd come and say stuff where you're trying to avert their gaze because you felt like they're going to read your mail. Um, but regularly uh, I remember hearing recalling people would say of this church that and often there was a it was a similar phrase to this is a church that is of uh, of significance rather than prominence and again the language we can kind of get caught up but it's kind of saying there's a weight I always felt like it was a church we've punched above our weight in terms of the impact that we've had for the number of people here and I absolutely am convinced it's because it's been, we've been a church that's been committed to doing the small things in front of us. When I was first employed, to, came on, on team to be the youth pastor, I might have told this story before, I really did not want to be a youth pastor. In fact, when I became a Christian, 
I kind of said to God, okay, God, you know, it's like God wore me down. I said, that's fine, God, okay, but I'm never going to be a pastor. I need to, need to let you know. It's very good of me to be clear with God about the terms and conditions. I'm never going to be a pastor. When Charles came and said, look, we want to start a, a youth ministry, I said, that's great, but um, I really think it's important for us to be involved, for me to be involved in schools. Again, chaplaincy was just starting to grow. Clem had been chaplain at Kelvin Grove. It was our local school. And... So we were just kind of trying to find a way to say, what do we do? What are the small things we do up, up there? Actually, the chaplain who came at the time was this beautiful lady, Carol Martin, who it was, it was a difficult context to, to be sort of a public Christian in a, in a school chaplaincy, was still um, learning to be trusted. It's now in a position of great strength where even though there are such strong forces who want to get it out, they can't remove it because actually the principals and the schools, communities, just, it's just too good. So we get that it's kind of weird that in secular schools you've got a public Christian, but it's just too good. There's too many small things happening that this needs to be a big thing. Back in the day, it was a little bit more difficult. And Carol Martin, she was just the best chaplain. She would knit booties for the teachers that were having babies. She just every single day found ways to be in there to say, what's the small thing in front of me? And from that, as we worked together, the opportunities for us to have favor and influence, it grew. I'd never ever forgot those booties and uh, I'd never got a pair uh, but the small things from there this is, this is our story this is our story folks I mentioned recently uh, actually in there's a big thing that's going on now at the moment in our world uh, in, in our uh, where, where did I put it in our community there's a bill that's before the, uh, the state government about abortion. It's something I feel really, really stirred by. Um, deeply stirred by because I feel deeply stirred of the value of all life and particularly vulnerable life and particularly vulnerable life at both ends of the spectrum, at, at sort of, of life. And so um, I've felt really exercised in my spirit to do something about that. Um, there is a sense of somewhat, I don't know if it's, a, a realism or a negative something, or I don't know, that needs to be cast out of me, perhaps, some of you might feel. But there is a little bit of a sense of a cultural tide that's got inevitable, it's sort of somewhat inevitable, but I still think it's really important for me, individually, to make a stand about a big thing that's going on, because there's something really small here. So I, I wrote in a pastoral letter I sent out, if you don't have one, you can grab one on the way out. But I said, I'm really exercised by this. I encourage you to be exercised by this. I'm challenged by what does it look like if from small things, little things grow? How do I get small here? I'm really thankful that there are organisations like Australian Christian Lobby, like um, Family Voice, which actually Charles is the chairman and actually at the moment he's the acting director. He's, he and their organisation, Australian Christian Lobby, they're a, an organisation that kind of looks to do big things in terms of being involved in lobbying, getting Christians to come together. And I'm really grateful, and actually as a church, we, we financially support those organisations. I'm also, as a pastor, exercised by and challenged by what does it mean for the church to do that? I'm glad, in, in a way, I'm glad that, that they exist because I think the church also has a responsibility here for small things. God values life. God values those unborn babies God also values 
the women who find themselves in a situation where they feel so vulnerable and so alone, so scared, whatever the scenario that has, has occurred for them to be in a place where there's an unwanted pregnancy, God really values that life. Really values that life. And then we, we might say there's lots of reasons and maybe some responsibilities of how it got there. I think even with all of that, God really values that life. And so I'm always really conscious of what does it look like for me, but even more so for us, to in the midst of this big issue, be small about that life. See, Family Voice, ACL, God bless them, support them. Actually, there's, there's something coming up. Uh, just uh, As it happens, Family Voice in a couple of weeks are doing something here where there's going to be a senator, Amanda Soka, who's going to speak to this issue. Um, and, and I really encourage you to come along. We'll, we'll continue to publish uh, details about it during the week. There's a breakfast here. Come and be informed. In that email, I actually gave you the link to the bill. Don't listen to what other people say about the bill. Go and read the bill. Get informed. This is all good. I'm so glad they do that. But Family Voice, Australian Christian Lobby, it's not their mandate or their position to ever have to deal with that young lady who's in that situation. You know whose is? Ours, the church. And so we've got to be careful and mind, mindful is the word about when we're pulling one lever to do something big, we might be pulling another lever that avoids us doing something small as well. So this always needs to be a place where someone feels that they could come even if they've made mistakes that they regret. I've sat with a number of women, sometimes girls would be the most appropriate way you describe how they present their maturity. I've yet to sit with someone who's explained their journey and their choice and now living out of the regret or the brokenness, the baggage they carry, where they are sort of smug or joyful or kind of really proud or mostly it's just I was scared. I felt so alone. I felt so vulnerable. I felt like there was no hope for this life this unborn child to have a good life or for me to have a good life and it felt like my only option how do we become the kind of place where people like that can walk in and say you know what I'm loved, I'm accepted doesn't matter what's happened in your past you're a small life that matters to us even more how do we do the small things day by day that we can become the kind of place proactively that perhaps that young mother sometimes it's a family would say, you know what, this was not planned, this was not wanted, the circumstances are right, but I think in the midst of this community there's hope. I think, I think this, this child and this family can flourish. I think I'm surrounded by a group of people who will see me and love me and support me. And so maybe there are other options. God bless ACL, God bless Family Voice, but they're not going to be that group. That's us, the church. And so I really encourage you to to be active but it's I guess I'm explaining why I think I'm careful about how the church does this because the, the, the small life that God cares about is also about people as well so when I've, I've, I've written some letters I've actually requested a, a meeting with um, with my local member I'm going to sit down I've done this before we sit down I've not signed it Pastor Graham I've just Graham I'm just someone in the community who's got I'm, I'm not trying to leverage the influence of the church I'm not there on behalf of you I'm not going to I'm just acting small and doing the thing that's in front of me. I'm a citizen. 
I'm concerned. This guy's representing me. Seems like he's going to do something I want to hear. And I've just said, I'd like to meet with you and, and listen to why you think this is... When you listen, you earn the right to be heard. I'm not going there to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to listen. I'll probably find a story there as well. From little things, big things grow. The challenge of the church, increasingly, is how do we get small? How do we act act small? And trust that Jesus said he will build his church. I'm so thankful that I rarely ever lose a night's sleep. I can't remember the last time I lost a night's sleep or peace about thinking about how do I make this church grow. I'm not interested in that. God delivered me from that. I'm thankful. It's not to say that I don't think the church should grow or I'm concerned if it's not growing because that growth actually is about health. So if we're not growing, I'm interested in that, but I'm not trying to think of things to make the church grow. Man, that's, that's a way to a heart attack and a whole lot of stress I can do without. Jesus said he'll grow his church. What we are to do, how do we get small? We're going to come around communion as we finish now. And again, in the similar way in which we start, I encourage you to, to think about your world as we move forward. I think it's really interesting that uh, as we come to the, the communion table, that what this represents actually is something really big for us. The empty tomb, the resurrection, the freedom of the eternal freedom and forgiveness of sins. It's really big and glorious and wonderful and it's magnificent. We should be thankful for it. When Jesus, in his wisdom, established what we're about to do, he actually drew us to the small thing. He said, actually, I want you to remember a body broken. I want you to remember bloodshed. Again, I feel like as I was reflecting on this this week, I feel like that's Jesus saying, there's a part you've got to do. You, you follow, follow my example. He said, daily pick up your cross and follow me as you walk into your world what's the small thing what's the humble thing what's the thing that will require sacrifice from you that'll be right in front of your face what does that look like for you and then from that something magnificent and glorious grows so we're going to have uh, there'll be a station up the back a couple here just going to play a song for a little while I encourage you just as we finish this morning to come and grab the elements and as we've done and as we move forward, what, is it gonna, what does it look like for you to respond to the small thing and trust that from that something big will grow, something eternal, something glorious, something life-giving? So as we do that, we're just going to play a song. Uh, feel free to come, come forward and, and grab uh, the elements here. F- eat and drink in your own time. At the end of that, I'll just pray a prayer and um, we'll finish for this morning. Thanks, guys. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website at www.homecommunityworld.com.au. Cornerstone meets at 81 Meter Parade Alderney every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Please feel free to join us. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. Thank you.